And we're going to begin in verse number 12. Revelation chapter number 2 and begin in verse number 12. And we got a lot of good things to cover today. And uh, I'm glad to be here, aren't you? And the Bible says, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Amen. And uh, I'm glad to be here. Glad to see all of you here. And uh, we'll try to have you out here within the next two hours or so. <clears throat> verse number 12 is where we're going to begin. We're going to be talking about the church at, uh, I've always said, Pergamos. Uh, Pergamos, as some people says it that way, where it depends on what side of the Mason-Dixon line you're on, I reckon, and, uh, well, I reckon, <laughs> but uh, um, to hear it actually pronounced is a little bit of a uh, in there, so I'm not going to do that. I, I don't want to get messed up. Last Sunday, I, I really messed up Smyrna. <laughs> I kept calling Smyrna Smyrna, and I was like, man, please, Lord, don't let me do that again. But uh, look, at, look at chapter 2, verse number 12. The Bible says, And unto the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he, which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith. Amen. In those days wherein Antipas, which my, was my faithful uh, martyr, says, Who was slain among you, <clears throat> where Satan dwelleth says, but I have a few things against thee. These are always the parts of the scripture of the churches of Revelation that we don't really want to hear. I have a few things against thee because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who also taught Balak. It says, to cast a stumbling stone before the children of Israel. Balaam taught Balak to cast the stumbling stone into the face of the children of Israel before Israel. It says, to eat things that are sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Remember them? We talked about them in the first church, the church at Ephesus. And he says, these things are which things I hate. Verse 16 says, repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna and will give him a white stone and in the stone a new name written which no man knoweth it says, saving he that receiveth it. Father, we love you. We ask you, Lord, to please. As always, Lord, we, uh, we depend upon you. Lord, we depend upon the Holy Spirit of God to show us, to reveal to us these scriptures. Uh, God, there are things that are written, uh, especially here in this book, that we can't understand with just our fleshly or carnal minds, and we need your help. We need you to reveal these things to us. And God, as uh, Brandon saying about living in the last days, Lord, I pray that these words would be so strong to our churches that are in the last days. Um, as Paul was in the last days, Lord, as one preacher said, we're in the last seconds. God, we ask you that you just please be with us. And Lord, that you would just teach us all things. Lord, we love you. We give you all praise and all glory, Lord. And, and someday, someday, Lord, we'll be able to lay down all the crown of glory, Lord, before the feet of Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. What a day, as Brandon sang about in the congregation, saying what a day that's going to be when all of that is gone. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you wouldn't be seated. This morning, I'm going to just kind of jump right in. We have a couple of things we want to do besides preaching today. We also have a baby dedication service. And um, <clears throat> I get so wrapped up in preaching sometimes, y'all just make sure that I don't forget that, all right? Because I get, I get caught up. But if you would, I want you to look back at verse number 12. And we're going to talk about the commencing of this church. You remember, if you look on the back of your study notes, there are some study notes there <clears throat> in your uh, bulletin. And uh, on the back of it, we're going to be talking about all of these seven things that pertain to this church. The first one is the commencing of this church. 
Uh, and in the commencing of it all, this church was the faltering church. Uh, I, if you were to look at it, you were to see that, uh, remember Pergamos, uh, remember Ephesus, uh, and you remember that we talked about last Sunday, uh, the church at Smyrna was one that was fearful. Uh, this one we're talking about is that, it's on your notes there, the faltering church. And we're going to talk about the commencing of this church. Look at verse number one. The Bible says unto the church, unto the angel of the church at Pergamos, or Pergamos, it says, right. Uh, again, we've moved away. We've moved away where he's not really talking to Ephesus. He's not talking to Smyrna. He's not talking to any other church. Uh, as much to say as he's really speaking to the church here at, at Pergamos. And uh, uh, this church is called, listen, the land that they lived is Pergamos. It was called Pergamon. It was called Pergamon. And uh, it was just an area uh, that you say, well, I, Brother Steve, is it called all those different things. Well, it was just the transliteration of it all. As we translate it into our languages today, it's just a reference of who they are. And uh, some people say, well, Brother Steve, I don't understand that. Well, also, there are, church, uh, there are cities that have names on them, but even within that city, they have different kind of names. I mean, we have Warrior, Alabama, and then you have, if you ever... Uh, we're born and raised around here. You know they can, they have Sloky also. Anybody from Sloky? They, their toes are muddy. That's the difference in them because they keep their shoes off all the time. But uh, everybody knows that within that city you might have a name of a different one. If you don't know where that's at, it's across from where the old Dewey Barber used to be. But uh, some of y'all are looking around going, what? There's also in our area that we live, uh, we, we, we call it Codell Hill. Going down to the bottom down here towards Trafford. But uh, years ago when it flooded, I, I figured out a new name for it. Uh, I never knew it before, and people, I would tell them down at the bottom of Cota Hill, and they would, oh, you're talking about Flea Holler. You're talking about Flea Holler, and I'm like, no, no, I'm not. I'm talking about the bottom of Cota Hill. And uh, so in this, in this city or in this church, it has these names, but they're all talking about the same one. So don't let anyone confuse you. Don't let others and translations of different Bibles or different translations of the Bible confuse you to make you think that it's wrong. It's actually called those three things, but they're all the same. Just different variations and transliterations of the Greek word. The Bible says that he's speaking to the angel of this church. In the very first weeks of our study, we learned that the angel of this church was the pastors of these church. You, your pastor is an angel. You didn't know that, but he is. He, has a, he also has a nice shiny glow, has a, like a halo would be. But uh, looking at this city, I want to kind of give you some history about it. I hope that you've enjoyed this. <clears throat> I hope, if you, uh, hope that I've been very understandable, and I hope that it's been in such terminology that us here in the South, we can understand things that are going on. But in this land right here, in this city, it was also another one of the Roman uh, invaded cities. It was uh, a culturistic of Rome, uh, that just as the city last week of Smyrna, the, these churches are not very far from one another. And what's really cool is if you were to look at the map of uh, the old ancient Asia Minor or the modern-day Turkey, and you were to see where these seven churches are, they're so great because when he speaks at Ephesus first, and then begins to speak to the church at Smyrna, and now we're at Pergamos, he actually goes in a clockwise manner. He takes those churches right at Ephesus and begins there because all of them kind of filtered out of the area and the city of Ephesus or the church at Ephesus. That's where Paul's greatest ministry was, was in Ephesus, and the word of God was glorified there, and then all of those church members, instead of just building a massive church, they begin to go into their own cities or go into other places and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is actually what we're supposed to be doing. 
Uh, we're not supposed to be building huge mansion churches and stuff. We're actually supposed to be going out and just sharing more and sharing more and sharing more. Amen? But the, the churches, as you go out and you look at uh, uh, Pergamos or Pergamos or Pergamum, whichever one you want to call it, uh, parchment was also one of the things that came from there. Uh, it was called Pergamina Charta, which is a, uh, was discovered to do what? To have books. And it's really, really neat because in a moment we're going to learn about that the second largest library, the second largest library in the world at that time is here in the land or in the city of Pergamos, uh, the other one being in Alexandria. And uh, this, this library in Pergamos was full of medical books, had medical scrolls over and over and over. And there were much people that <clears throat> were there in this city that if you were sick and you lived in Ephesus or if you lived in Smyrna or any of the Thyatira or any of the other churches, this was the city, Brother Matt, that you would go, all right, I want to get, if my wife is sick, I want to get her there. The reason is, is because of all of the medical scrolls and the medical uh, uh, understanding and wisdom that they had in this city of Pergamos. Uh, but also, it was the capital city of, of the Greek Empire until the Romans came in. And, and it was the last Greek Empire to hold on to being Greek until the Romans finally invaded and took it all over. They were the last ones holding on. Kind of like Andy Griffith in the episode where the goat eats the dynamite and the old lady would call and he'd say, we're still holding on to Richmond, you know. Uh, they were still hanging on in there. Some of y'all don't like me and that's fine. It's okay. Uh, some of you get me well. Some of you just look at me like, he is crazy. Uh, but it, they were holding on and holding on and holding on, and they were the last ones to give in. And so you, you could see that in, uh, it was actually 133 B.C. when Pergamus finally gave in to Roman rule. Uh, the other thing is this about the city is that it was the site of the first temple ever that built a temple, a house of worship in honor of a Caesar or an emperor of Rome. It was the first ones to ever do that. It may be in the sense, and you think about this with me, I like to go back in history and look at things. Uh, if you're the last one holding on and you want Rome to like you, it's probably best you do something to make them like you. And one good thing was is to start out a trend of building temples to the Caesars, to the, to the emperors. And so uh, Caesar Augustus was the first one, and they built a temple there in Pergamos. You remember last Sunday we talked about Smyrna and that they were the second city to do that. And you remember they're all so close together, so when they hear about what the other one's doing, it, and, and I hate to dumb it down, but if one area gets a jacks, everybody gets a jacks. And if I can say it even a better way that you can understand it, if there's a Dollar General in Hayden, there's one in Warrior, <laughs> there's one in Trafford, and there's one all over the planet, that and an Alex Shannara sign. Uh, so, but they built a uh, temple uh, in honor and worship of Caesar Augustus in 29 B.C. Uh, also, other temples that were built in Pergamum is this. Uh, the temple, and I'm going to try to say these words the right way, but it's Asclepius, and that was the god of healing. Uh, obviously, if you had scrolls, over 200,000 scrolls, medical scrolls and other scrolls of wisdom and books in the library, that you were going to have a place also that you would worship the God of healing. And the God of healing, Eclipsius was one, or Asclepius, he was one that they, they worshipped, that he always had a staff or a pole in his hand, and it had two serpents that were on it. And if you're a studier of the Bible, you'll understand going back in the Old Testament, you'll know that the Bible says that the children of, Hebrew, uh, children of Israel were in disobedience to God, and God sent fiery serpents. 
uh, something that sometimes we may need again uh, to these disobedient people, right? But, and God told them that they could have healing, and it was only because of what? Because Moses went and interceded, and he was an advocate, and he prayed, and he said, God, please relieve the people, and, and he said, okay, take what? He said, take a pole and put a brazen serpent on there. But church, we are to move away from that. It was never intended that they worship that serpent or brazen serpent on a pole, it was intended to do what? To remind them of their sin and to convict them of their sin. And when they looked, they looked with repentance. And you say, how do you know that, Brother Steve? Well, Brother John, because the Bible says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And he said, and if I be lifted up, I will draw all men nigh to me. And those are the words of Jesus. And so Jesus is the one that is worthy of worship. But when we look at Jesus on the cross, what does it do? It brings conviction for our sin. But then when we look at an empty tomb of Jesus Christ, what does it cause us to do? To worship him, the one that was dead and is alive forevermore. So, and then another, another area or a temple was the throne or the altar of Zeus. And I, I got a picture here, and Brother Rusty's going to show it to you. This is called the uh, Pergamum altar. Uh, I don't know if you can see it very well. Uh, I wanted it this way because no one was there. All the other pictures and stuff... Um, they were uh, people all standing around there. This is not in Pergamon. This is in another area. Uh, but they brought it in and they rebuilt it. Uh, and they wanted to have some kind of history. They wanted to have some kind of art history of Roman history. And they built it. It's out of white marble. It's all that they excavated, brought in, and it's out of white marble. And you can look, and you really can't see it. If you squint real hard, you may. But there's all kinds of designs. There's horses. There's chariots. There's all kinds of emblems in there but when you walk up these huge steps to go to the altar this is called the throne or the altar of Zeus and as they walk up to this throne or altar of Zeus on the right side right there as they're walking up are these engravings and there's Zeus and his massive body I, I mean I would take my shirt off today and show you but I mean we, you know you know I didn't want to do that it's no comparison I, I may have calves like some of these guys but I don't have anything else and uh but when you walk on the left side and you're looking up on the left side when you walk up, they have Athena, uh, a goddess. And she's got uh, one guy by the hair, uh, and she's killed, destroying him, dragging him off by his hair, uh, not, not in a, a loving, caring way. Uh, he has fear, and man, the Romans, the way that they carved these things, the fear all in the eyes and you can see it but then his mother also was there I think that the uh, the name was uh, Aclanius was one and then he mother uh, Gail was standing there but what's crazy is the way that these Romans believed was that there were many gods and there were many goddesses if you'll kind of hang on and you listen um, there were many gods and many goddesses lowercase g and what they did is that they're the ones that gave power to the people if Rome was going to go out and to fight a battle they would pray to the gods that actually they said would help them conquer uh, this one Athena uh, that she she had bows she had other things in her hand and she was dragging them off kill and she had a face it's actually the facial part of it is broken off but the facial part is looking up and what it's looking up to it's looking up to an angel or a goddess angel a Roman goddess angel and it's a Nike okay I'm not we're not going to talk about that that happened this week we're talking about something else 
But she's crowning Athena as though all of your victory, you get that. You remember what the church at Smyrna had last week? He said, to he that overcometh, I will give a crown of life. Do you remember that? See, a lot of people think that it was the Christians that robbed those thoughts from the Romans, but the Romans came after all of these things. And Jesus is telling the churches what? As they walk through all of these things of their daily life, the altar of Zeus or the Pergamon altar, all of those things, they were there daily. There was when you went up this huge hill or the, up these huge steps and you would go in, there would be a fire that would be burning to Zeus. And then Adam and Angie, because they were worshipers of Zeus, Right? We're going to go over there, and they would bring their sacrificial meats unto the god Zeus. And they would offer their meats unto the god Zeus. But as they offered their meats, it wasn't like the sacrifices that God said, that God gave. They would also partake and eat of that meat. And they were saying, listen, you do that. As they roasted that meat or they sacrificed and offered that meat offering, then Adam would take it back with his family and he would praise Zeus because why? He offered this meat in the name of Zeus and he wanted Zeus to bless him or he would offer it unto Athena he would offer it unto Nike he would offer it unto all of these goddesses and gods and that's the culture of the way the Romans were do you see what's going on there was not one god to them there was many gods to them and whoever could help them was the one that they used they used it in a sense of they had books to where they would go, okay, you have issues with this, then you'll offer such and such to this God. You have issues with this, you'll offer such and such to this God. Much like even in some religions today that call themselves Christians, they have books of prayer. And in these prayer books... They'll have, if you need issues of tribulation and trials and all of those things, that you would pray, pray to St. James. And when you prayed to St. James, then therefore he would be the one that would help you through those things. If you had stomach issues, if you had lower problems with your stomach and everything was messed up, you would pray to the St. Timothy because Timothy said what? Paul told him that he had stomach issues and to drink a little wine for the stomach's sake, all of that. And so it was like a formula. It was almost like WebMD. And everybody knows what that is. If you've ever been to a doctor, you go home and look it up on WebMD and you're terrified because of all the things that are on there. You know what I mean? You're walking out and you're already gone. You know what I mean? You've put the expiration date on yourself. And so you can see the culture of these people. This was a common place that they would gather. They would worship here on the steps. They would smell as the offerings would go up. But when people would come by, they would ask for some of that meat. And in order to receive some of that meat, you had to praise Zeus or whatever god or goddess that it was offered to. You had to do those things. Why? Because they said it's offered in the name of of Zeus and you do it that way church the teaching of the Nicolaitans were there also the teaching of Balaam all that stuff is wrapped up here do you remember from the first church what the teaching of the Nicolaitans were it was fornication and so what it means is, is there would be prostitutes, there would be men prostitutes, women prostitutes that presented themselves as priests and priestesses that would sit around these steps. They would wait daily for people to come by and they would convince them that the only way that they could have righteousness with Zeus, righteousness with the gods of Rome, is if they committed a fornication sexual act with them. That is sin. That is wrong. It is sinful. Amen. And even Israel was guilty of that. Even our New Testament church today there are some charlatans out there. I mean, I knew I'd get that word in someday. There are some charlatans out there that are even doing that same 
perverted thing today. But that doesn't make it right. Yeah, I'm telling you, that is a godless thought process to where pastors with children, pastors with people, that is sinful, and it's happening. But in this, it was just a part of culture. It was just the way of life. And so they would always gather at this. So now let's move out of that real quick and let's come on in. Let's look at what Jesus told this church. Now that you understand their culture. Look at verse number 12 again. And under the angel of the church in Pergamos, right. And look at what it says. Here's the characteristic of Jesus Christ. He says, right, this is he, or this saith he, which hath the sharp sword with two edges. He says, the person that's speaking to you has a sharp sword with two edges. We're moving into something different. In the first one, it was the tree of life. In the second church, it was the crown of life. It was all about if you endure, you will have fruit. If you endure, you will have health and you will have life. And you will have this in Christ. This is the first time, Brother William, that now we look at it that he says, this is the one that says to you that he has the sharp two-edged sword. This is different. This is Jesus saying, don't forget, yes, as I care and I'm loving, my judgment is wonderfully, wonderfully bathed and soaked in compassion. But don't forget, I'll also have a sharp two-edged sword. He said, don't forget that I'll also have something that will cut and divide. Listen, you know, when you think about that, listen, Ephesus had the pastors in his hand. He walked in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, which means he has the pastors in his hands and he's with the church. Don't you give up. The church at Smyrna had the first and the last. He that was dead and is alive now. Listen, they had those and had the crown of life. The description here is a Greek word, and if you wanted to write it down, it's O-X-Y-S, and it's oxus. O-X-Y-S, and the word here for sharp, okay? It's the Greek word for sharp. It means also sharp, but it means swift. It not only means sharp in its application, but it means it's swift, that it's fast. And he, what he means is, is that when he draws it out, it will be quick. And when God judges, there are times, listen, in your Christian life, there are times that God judges you for your sin quickly, immediately, just like that. Then there's other times that it seems to be lagging, but don't think that it's lagging. That's the long-suffering and compassion of God, amen? But don't think for one minute that he doesn't have judgment because he does. He says they will say peace and peace and sudden destruction shall come upon them. In the book of Proverbs, he says that they will be standing around and it says that what happens? He says swift destruction will come upon them and that will be without remedy. The Bible says that what happens that we need to be ready at a moment's notice because no man knows when he's coming back we need to be ready so the sh word sharp also means swift and listen this sword is notable in cutting and causing bloodshed it has two edges on it and I looked at that and I was like Lord what does it mean by having two edges and in order to understand one scripture you must understand other scriptures Look at what the Bible says, and I think it's in Hebrews chapter number 4 and verse number 12. For the word of God is what? Quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And this is what it does. Piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints, uh, excuse me, and of the joints and marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Bible says that it teaches us that this word is sharp, it's two-edged, and it means that it accomplishes two things. Look at what it does in that scripture. Number one, it pierces. You know what pierces means? It means that it goes through. 
that it thrusts through, amen? And if you think that you are impenetrable from the Word of God, you are mistaken. At some day, at some day, either in this life now through the grace of Almighty God or when life is over with, the Word of God is going to pierce your soul. It's either going to be now through grace and you accept Him or it's going to be later when you realize and you will have nothing to do because there will be no remedy for it when you bow before Him and honor Him because He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The Word of God is sharp. It's sharp enough to pierce you. It's sharp enough to cut me. It's sharp enough to pierce Charles Manson. It's sharp enough to pierce even the vilest sinner. It is. And it's two-edged. What's the two-edged? Look in the scripture right there. It, first of all, it tells us to the dividing of the soul and spirit. God's word is so, and, and I don't want to use this as just dumbing it down or bringing it down, but it is so cool. It is so awesome. I used to have a friend that would always say when we get excited about the Bible, he would look at me and say, what do you think about that? What do you think about that? And I'm like, what do you think I think about that? I'm excited. Can't you see the excitement? And then, What do you mean? What do you think about that? And listen. This word right here, it says it pierces, goes through, but second of all, it says it divides soul and spirit. Church, it has the effectiveness to come in and to divide you right where it needs to go. It has the power to convict it has the power to heal. It has the power to correct you right in the inner parts, dividing soul and spirit. And spirit in that sense is talking about the inward spirit of yourself, not the Holy Spirit of God. No, not a capital S, but man and woman's spirit that was breathed in. Listen, church, as we have a spirit, the Bible says our spirits bear witness with one another. And when we're both hooked up to the Holy Spirit, we really bear witness with one another. Amen? But listen, it divides both soul and spirit. The second thing is this. It also can cut, and I love this. It says it also can cut all the way down to the preciseness of what? Of joints and marrow. You know what that means when he talks about joints and marrow? It has nothing to do with the spiritual side of you. It has everything to do with the fleshly side of you. The Word of God has every... That, when it talks about the joints and the marrow, that deals with just our flesh. It deals with going all the way in to divide joints and marrow to where... Listen, when you look at this, it means that God understands everything naturally about you also. The Word of God has the power to do what? Not only affect soul and spirit, but also your flesh. Listen, let me say something to you. When we go to Belize, and I'm going to go quickly through this, but when we go to Belize, we go into mountains where you're five, six hours away from being able to go to any kind of medical attention. And you say, well, brother, see, what do they do? We teach them about the power of faith and the power of healing. And it seems like American churches today have lost sight of that. American churches today, it's our first thing is that we go to some kind of medication, some kind of something, but we've lost sight of the fact that the Bible still teaches us that God is a creator of the body and that he is also the wonderful healer of the body and that God still has power, doesn't he? We shouldn't be a church that go, you know what, all that miracle stuff, that was just way back then. All that healing stuff, that was just for the Bible days and stuff. We're still living in the days of the Bible. We're still living in the moments where we need to pray and say, God, please heal. Listen, when your child's got a fever, ask God to take it. Amen. 
Ask God. Ask God for wisdom and understanding. And he will also teach you, look, what you need to do. And I'm not against medical things because even Luke in the Bible was a physician. And we understand from his point of view, what did he write about more in the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke? More than anything, what did Luke write about? Miracles and healing. How great was it that God had a doctor write these things down and not just some dummy? Because just some dummy would have been one that said, you know what, I don't know about all this. Miracle, mar uh, Luke marked it up always. Miracle. <laughs> Miracle. And there are still doctors today that are surprised by people's results. And they go, I don't know what happened. It was there, but it's not there. Maybe this messed up. Maybe that messed up. And it's like, no, people called up, amen, and asked God to help them. I believe in that. I hope you do too. Listen, he divides the joints and the marrows. Jesus reaches into the very person of our spirit, but he reaches into the very person of our humanity. He knows all things about us, and he knows the very intimate details of our lives. The third thing is this, that it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Not just soul and spirit, not just bones and marrow and flesh, but he says, even a discerner of your thoughts. And look, intents of the heart. Intents of the heart. He understands everything about you. And the Word of God does that. Listen, both body and soul, body and spirit, bone, marrow, flesh, all of that. You know what God says about His Word? He says it's sharp enough and two-edged that it can pierce all of that. <laughs> so what He's saying is, is this. He says, church at Pergamos, He says, you think that you have an issue and you think you have a problem? He tells them, Brother Adam, you can bring anything to me. Because when you bring it to me, I have a word of God that will handle everything that you would ever need. You got a book like that. You got a book like that. And I'd be ashamed to ask you how many of you have read that book every day this week. You got a book like that. That's what your book is. That's what the Bible is that you have in your hand. It doesn't work if you don't pick it up. Pocket knives don't peel apples unless you take the pocket knife out of your pocket and put it on the apple. And the Word of God doesn't apply into your life unless you pick the Bible up and read the Bible and bring it inside, amen? And listen, it's strong enough to help you. Pierces everything about you. Listen, here's the commendation of this church. Look at verse number 13. We're, we're going to go. I know y'all are thinking we're not going to make it out of here. We're going to make it out. We'll make it. We'll do it. Look at verse 13. I know your works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is, and thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith. Even in those days where in Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. Look at that scripture. He says what? Number one, I know your works and where you dwell. Aren't you glad? Listen, maybe some of you aren't glad that God knows your works. But if you're doing the work of the Lord, you would be glad about it. He says, I know your works. And he says, I know where you're at. I know where you're dwelling. I know where you're at. Listen, sometimes what are we tempted to do in our prayer time? In our prayer time, especially when we're in some kind of huge press or fiery trial or something, what are we tempted to do more than anything? We're tempted to say, you don't understand. When you try to share it with someone else and they look at you and they try to say something, what do you look back at them and say? You have no idea. You're not where I'm at. You don't understand. That's what we do, right? We say that. And sometimes even in our prayers, we're tempted to think 
that he doesn't understand where we are and what's going on. Lord, you've never been through this part. You've never been through that. But the Bible says what? Jesus says that I know where you dwell. I know everything about you. And not only that, church, we could say as a church in the United States of America, Lord, you don't know what's going on with all these sinful things that are going on and laws and bills and all this stuff that's being passed. You just don't understand. And Jesus looks at us as a church today and he says, Brother Matt, I know right where you are. I know where you dwell. I know where I've planted the church. I know where I've put you, and I know your works. Amen? You need to be comforted in that to know that if he knows where we are, we can talk to him about it freely, and he'll understand us. Isn't it awesome to have a friend that you can be able to go to that maybe has experienced something? Maybe one of these silver-haired persons in here today, these saints of God that have gone through something, and you can go to them and ask them, how did you make it through? And you lost your wife, you lost your husband, you lost your, chi- lost your child, or you lost your parents. And how did you make it through? How, what, what was it that you went through? And they can look at you because they know, because they've been there, and they can put their arm around you and say, I understand. I understand what you're going through. Listen, it's amazing that the scripture before this one says that he understands the intents of our hearts. That what he's saying is, I know everything. And I know what you're thinking, and I know what you're going through. Here's the second thing. He says, you've held fast my name. And you have not denied my faith. He said, you've held fast my name. Why did he say that? Look at the scripture. He says, I know your works, where you dwell us. But look at this next word. He says, even where Satan's seat is. What is he talking about? He says, I know where you live. The throne of Zeus was there. The altar of Zeus was there. And you know what they called Zeus and Pergamum and Pergamos? You know what they called that? They called Zeus the Savior. He was known as Zeus the Savior. And church, Jesus is telling them, I know where you're at. I know where you dwell, and I know where Satan's seat is. I know that they've lifted him up on the side of this mountain in Pergamum. Do you know the word Pergamum means or Pergamus means? It means exalted and high or elevated. And on the side of the mountain, Brother Matt, they built that huge altar going up to Zeus. And it's elevated up above the other things so that the flames and the smell and all those things, and that they would go up to worship. And Jesus says, I know where Satan's seat is. And he says, and I know how you've held on to faith. Listen to those words, church. He says that you've held on. You've hold fast my name. It's almost, Brother Brandon, as though Jesus is picturing these people. Are you with me? It's almost as if Jesus is picturing these people and he can see them and it's like they're holding on to faith, Brother Brother Adam, in a storm. And they're just holding on. All that they can do in this land is that they're just trying their best. This church, the true people in the church, they're just trying to hold on. There's people that are coming in the church teaching false things, the Nicolaitans, these other people that are coming in, these charlatans, and they're just trying to hold on. And Jesus says, you're holding fast on my name. Look at the other thing that he said. You have not denied my faith. Listen, church, you say, what do you do, Brother Steve, when we get into these perilous times and these difficult times? The only thing that we can do is just rest assured that we just hold on to faith. Hold on to faith. But understand this. If you want to write anything down, mark it down in your brain, put it in a piece of stone, you remember this. It's not always that it's just, we're just holding on to faith. We're holding on to faith. Okay? It's not holding on to Jesus as much as we're holding on to faith in Christ. Okay? We're holding on to our belief and faith and understanding and trust and wisdom that we know in the Word of God. You know why? Because the Bible teaches us we're not holding on to Him. You know, He's got us in His hands. And so what we need to do is just hold on to that faith, knowing that he's got us. Church, listen, all I can think about is if the church 
body of Christ is up to waters of tribulation to its neck and the head is not under, then we're not going under. So how would you know that? Because all I can picture in my mind, my Lord is just holding us up. Amen. Holding us up and we're not going to go under. Listen, the Bible says that I even know in that scripture, it says, wherein Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was slain among you. Look at those words, faithful martyr. Faithful martyr. Wouldn't you like to have your name in the Bible? I'd like to have my name in the Bible. My name is actually kind of in the Bible. And uh, remember last week where he says you receive a crown of, of uh, life, you know? You would receive a crown of life. The Greek word is Stephanus. I mean, Steve crowned one. He does. It does. Yes. Y'all don't look. Y'all looking at me like it doesn't. I promise you it does. Um, but wouldn't you like to have your name in there that said faithful Amy? Submissive Brandon. Oh, righteous Barbara. Wouldn't you like to have that name? Not, not old, but righteous Barbara. <laughs> I try to do so good, and my mouth hurts me all the time. I didn't say old. I said old. O-L. We're good. Seasoned Barbara. Wouldn't you like to have your name? The only thing we know about this guy is that he was a martyr. The only thing we know about him is he was a martyr. But one key word that described him was faithful. If you go back to Revelation, don't turn there, but if you were to go back to Revelation chapter number 1, you know what you'll find out. The Bible says about Jesus when John first saw him, he said that he was the true and faithful witness. He's faithful. Listen, this man, Antipas, which was faithful to Jesus Christ, was described by Jesus as a faithful servant. And you know what it says right there? He was slain among you, and he even gives the location where Satan dwelleth. He wasn't killed in hell. No, what he was talking about, Satan's seat was the throne of Zeus. Right there on those steps or at that altar, evidently this man would not bow down and would not eat the meat sacrificed to idols, and he was killed right there in front of them all. He might have been crazy, and he might have been nuts according to all the people, but according to Jesus looking down, faithful. Amen. Amen. Boy, that'd be some good words to have spoken about us. Listen, here's the criticism that Jesus had, and we're going to close in just a moment. The criticism, he says, but I have a few things against thee, because thou hast them there that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who also taught Balak to cast a stumbling stone before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. The Bible says the things that Jesus had against this church, number one, was that they held the doctrine of Balaam. Anybody remember Balaam? Remember, Balaam was the one that was dumb enough not to even listen to a donkey. Do you remember that? Donkey tried to tell him over and warn him over and over. He kept putting him into the wall and putting him into the wall. He was trying to turn him around. And finally, the Bible says this, and listen, don't you dare act like you ain't had some donkeys talk to you. I've had a few of them talk to me. <laughs> I've baptized a couple of them. <laughs> listen, turned around. Can't you see that angel standing in front with what? With the sword. He was ready to kill him. He was going to kill him. Thank God for the donkey talking to him. I don't know how he said it. Well, you know. <laughs> but evidently, he said it in a way where he did. But you know what? Balaam did what? He taught King Balak to do what? To abuse the blessings of God. 
He, he was a man that taught this king how to use God as a benefit and not as a God and as one to worship, but just as a benefit. And he brought the people into bondage of fornication. And what was happening was, was King Balak was bringing all of the children of Israel and himself into sin deeper and deeper by putting God's name on top of it saying that you would be blessed if you do this by God, if you do this. Listen, he says some of you in that church hold that doctrine. Listen, that was thousands of years. That's way back over here in the Bible. And that process is still being taught. Do you know what, church? 2,000 years have gone by, and that same process in theory is being taught today. That people today are abusing the grace of God. No, you don't have to do that. Listen, it, uh, God, not, God created wine and turned the water into wine. You can just go out and do whatever you want. You can get drunk and you can have this and have all that. And what they're teaching is, is that they're using things as God's benefit to their life. They're abusing the grace of God. The Bible says you've not got a license to go back into sin. Amen? He says you would come out. Here's the other thing. He says you're also teaching the doctrines of the Nicolaitans. Do you remember what he said to the first church at Ephesus? He said some of them there are what? They have the teachings uh, and that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now we've moved into a different area. He's not saying just the deeds. He says, but some of y'all are now teaching it as doctrine. See, the word changed. It's not just what they're doing out there, but now you've brought it into the church and you're teaching it as a doctrine. It's almost as if you're teaching it in Sunday school. And you're teaching these ways in your church. And listen, that's what's happening. You know what the biggest word that's missing out of churches today is? Repent. That's the biggest, largest word. Listen, an idol is always most often a good thing until somebody turns it into a God thing. What's happening is, is that you remember the Bible says of Peter, and we've got to really sum this up real quick. Remember the Bible says that Peter, he saw this sheet coming down and it had all the animals on it. And God says, don't call unclean what I've called clean and all that stuff. What was going on was that people were eating meat sacrificed under the idol Zeus. And that means that you had to worship in the name of Zeus or Athena and all these others. And what was going on was some of the people in the church were trying to mix Roman culture in with Christianity, which is exactly what's wrong with the American church today. They're mixing Roman or American things and teachings in with the church. And what happens is, is you begin, instead of having a church that worships Jesus Christ, all of politics, all of patriotism, all of those things, which are good in the land that we live, but should not be mixed together in a blender with Jesus Christ. He's worthy enough to be all on his own. And then they brought that teaching together. And Brother Butch, when they brought it together, now they are allowing people to have fornication. They're allowing people to eat the meat sacrificed unto gods in the name of their gods. And God says, or Jesus says, you're doing wrong and you're teaching it as a doctrine now. You've moved away and you're faltering. You're falling every single day. The Bible says that, or the Bible teaches that an idol is often a good thing that somebody turns into a God thing. And we shouldn't do that. So Jesus gives them correction. What's the correction that Jesus gives them? Love this. This is really long, really thorough, really, really in-depth. Jesus looks at this church in verse number 16 and says, repent. Amen. What is repent? It means that you turn away. It's not regret, and it's not remorse for sin. Repentance is much different. Holman Dictionary defines it like this. Repentance is an essential element in the salvation experience. In response to the call of God in one's life, there must be repentance. That is, 
the willful determination to turn from a life of sin and self-ruled to a life ruled by God and lived in his righteousness. Repentance can be said to have occurred when someone has been convicted of the reality of their personal sinfulness. They reject and renounce that life of sin and they turn to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Repentance is needed. We can't lose that word in the church. Repentance is a good thing. And if you come to the altar to repent, you should be happy and rejoice when you leave. Acts chapter number 20 says this about Paul. He spoke about his ministry being all wrapped up in repentance. He says, listen, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations, which befell me by the lying and weight of the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but I've showed you. And he says, and I've taught you publicly and from house to house. This is what Paul's ministry was wrapped up in. Testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, what? Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I go bound in the spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there. Save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth every, uh, in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me, but none of these things move me. He said, I'm not worried about it, and neither count my life dear unto myself so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Church, he says, repentance was the very first thing out of the gate when it comes to the gospel, and we need repentance. And here's the caution. Come on, Brother Brandon. The caution is this. Look at verse 16. He says, repent or else. Man, anybody, you, anyone in here, have ever uh, heard that statement before? You remember when you were young? Maybe your mother or your dad was in the other room. And you were doing something wrong. And you, you knew you were doing something wrong. And they hollered out, in the, out through the bedroom, or maybe they were in the living room, you were in your bedroom, they hollered out to you. Anybody relate to this? And they go, hey, you need to stop that. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Then all of a sudden they would go, hey, I'm telling you, you need to stop that. You know, they give you a couple of warnings. It, it was like uh, firing shots over your head kind of deal then all of a sudden they would say this if you don't stop that or you need to stop that or else I mean you need to stop when you get the or else you need to stop if I have to come in there anybody ever heard that before right it was always it preceded them coming in there right it says or else look at what he says or else I will come into thee quickly and these are hard words listen to me church I'll fight against them with the sword of my mouth the sharp two-edged sword. He said, if you don't repent, I'm coming. And I'm coming quick. Now I know that a lot of you in here probably don't think of Jesus that way. But a good God, a great God, is a God that actually loves you unconditionally but also holds you accountable to you disobeying him. And so he says, if you don't, or else I'm going to come quickly and I'm going to fight against you. Man, you imagine fighting against Jesus. You say, Brother Steve, what would that be like? It would be like coming to church on a Sunday morning, Sunday night, or in a worship service sometime during the week, and you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God, and he's telling you, repent. You don't need to live that way. You know that's wrong. You want to hold on to it, but you know it's wrong. Why don't you just surrender? Why don't you just repent? That's fighting Jesus. It's fighting the Holy Spirit. It's grieving the Holy Spirit. It's fighting against Jesus. You're fighting against the Word of God. Who's Jesus going to fight against? He said, of those that teach the doctrine of Balaam and also those that teach the doctrine of the Nicolaitans and all of those that do what? Hold on to the doctrine of those two things. You know what the certainty is, and we'll close. 
look with me at the last verse of 17. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, to him that overcometh. Will I give the eat of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name, which, <laughs> a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. And the Bible says the certainty of it all is that if we repent, this is what God will do for us. The first thing that he'll do, he'll give you manna that's hidden. Why did he say hidden manna? You remember the children of Israel, Brother Matt, they were accused of by the Egyptians that they're just going to go out into the wilderness and die because they're not going to have any food. But what did God say? If you trust me, I'll give you food that they don't know of. And what did he do? He caused manna to come down from heaven. And he fed them daily with all that provision. When they got upset and whined, he gave them meat. He did. You know what Jesus is saying to the church? He's saying, listen, you don't have to eat of that meat sacrifice to those idols and think that that's the only way you're going to sustain your life. If you will be obedient and you will repent and not allow that and you'll hold on to your faith, he said, I'll feed you with hidden manna. What is hidden manna, church? It's Jesus. What did he say? He stood up in the middle. He said, I'm the bread of life. He said, I am the bread of life. He said he will sustain you. Remember, even Jesus at times in his life, Brother William, he would go out there and the disciples would go, ain't you hungry? Don't you want something to eat? And he would look at them and go, I have meat. What of you know not? He said, I'm eating things that you don't even know, man. He said, listen, God is filling me up. Listen, the body's not always about bread, but, but about every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And he says, church, don't surrender to the culture of the place where you're at. Don't you dive in and go, well, you know what? Since we can't get rid of it, let's just get along with it. He says, don't do that. He said, I'll give you hidden manna. Where will it be hidden? It won't be hidden from you because it's given to you. It will be hidden from the eyes of all the other people. The second thing is this. Listen. People go, oh, we've got to do this. We've got to get along. We've got to get along with their politics. We've got to get along with all this stuff, patriotism, all the other stuff, and mix it all in our church. Let me say something to you. The church doesn't gather at worship at Capitol Hill, we gather at Calvary's Hill. We don't gather and meet down at the White House. We don't meet at the courthouse. We don't gather in worship at those places. We gather at Capitol Hill. No, Calvary's Hill. At the place where Jesus gave his life for us. He said the second thing is this. I'm going to give him a white stone. He said, well, what's the white stone? If you would, Brother Rusty, go to that picture. I think it, it may be maybe last, but go to that picture again. Do you remember all of this temple area, this temple mount, the altar of Zeus, Pergamum altar, where Zeus is called Savior? All of it, what, in that marble white stone, Sister Laura? They walked up through there. Man, I, I, I've watched documentaries and, and videos on this artistic stuff, all about these things. did all of my research. They talk about this this temple steps being the most beautiful that was ever carved out by the Roman people. If you get a chance and go and look it up, the Pergamum altar, it, it, they actually talk about the drapes that were on Athena and how deep that they carved it into that marble and how it just flowed. It looked like they actually say that this was one of the first times that it actually looked 3D as it came out. So as they were walking up uh, on the steps up there, Randy, they would look, and even some of the people that were carved into this marble stone, their knees and stuff would be on the steps as though they were coming out, and it was alive. And Matt, can you imagine all of those people in those days just taking it all in and just looking at it? And Jesus says to the church, I'll give you a white stone. Not like the Roman marble stones. I'll give you a white stone. 
Church inside the old high priest, he had a breastplate on. And behind the breastplate was a pocket that had a white stone and a black stone in there. And it was called the Urimen and the Thummim. And inside of that, it meant justice and it meant righteousness. And it also, it, it, it meant that God would provide, God would take care. And before they had the word of God, hang with me just a moment. Before they had the word of God, the high priest would go. He couldn't go into the Holy of Holies, Brother Matt. He would go right up to the curtain. And he would ask God, God, what do we need to do? Lord, these people are teaching this doctrine. What do we need to do? We need your answer. We need wisdom. God, what do we need to do? And I know you think it's foolish, but listen. They would reach behind that breastplate. The Bible says that it was close to Aaron's heart. It constantly, and reach behind that breastplate, and he would pull out one of those stones, and God would answer him. Yes, in the white stone. No, in that black stone. And then he'd put him back. Always knowing. Now, we may flip a quarter, but that's the way God designed it for them. And you know what? God answered them. You know what God says to this church? If you hold righteousness, he said, I'll give you a white stone. That what's written on it, even in the Old Testament days, the Urim and the Thummim, they didn't understand what that meant. They didn't understand the writing. on. He says, I'll give it to you. And it'll have the name on there that no one else will know but you. Brother John, he says... I'll give you a foundation. I'll give you something sure. And Jesus says, if you hold on, he said, I'll always, always say yes to you. Yes, here it is, church. The last thing he said, he said, I'll put in there a name that nobody knows but you. The Bible says he's going to give us a new name. He's going to give us a name that no one knows. Listen, he's going to give such a name that, listen, he knows it. And when he calls, we'll know and we'll hear and we'll leave. This church at Pergamum was suffering. They were about to falter, and they were to squander all of their stuff and all their blessings. And God, Jesus, God's Son, took all of the things that they were seeing, and he answered them with what they saw. He said, I'll give you a name. He said, what do you mean? When they walked up on that right, there's Zeus, the mighty Savior. What a name that was carved underneath him. When they walked over and looked on the left side as they come down from worshiping Zeus or seeing the people worshiping Zeus, there's Athena, there's the goddess Nike, there's all of these things, and they're looking and their names under, and all thinking about what would it take to get my name on something like that. If I just had my name in marble and engraved on all of that, but by church, the Bible says that our names are engraved into the palm of his hand. The Bible says that we are in his hand and he has given us a white stone and our name is written that no man knows, amen. And what it means by what no man knows is it's like this, is that whenever we're walking for Christ, it's though people look at us and go, who is that? Who is that person, amen? You can tell who they are. They're the sons and they're the daughters of God. Isn't that encouraging? Isn't it great? So my advice to you today, my message to you today is going to be simple and direct, just like Jesus's. Repent. You're going to have to turn away from all of this worldly, culturistic stuff, and you've got to repent. You say, Brother Steve, what would it take for me to go to heaven? Well, 